All right, everybody. Welcome. Let's go ahead and get started with our second to the final session of Truth for Life. And we're trying to apply these doctrinal issues and terms that we hear about all the time uh, to pra practical life is the objective. So we have today, and then we have two weeks from today, and, and then we'll be finished. So next week is Easter. We don't have second hour, just one service next week at 10.30. So our Easter worship service will be at 10.30 next week. Two weeks from today, we will have our regular schedule. We'll finish this class. And then we start the four-week newcomer's orientation. So any of you that have never taken the newcomer's orientation, that's a class that I lead. We give you a notebook of material for you to hear about our church and what we believe and what our philosophy is and things we hope to accomplish in the future. It's in a small setting, so you can ask any questions that you might have. And it's all designed to help you make a decision about where God would have you grow and serve. Everybody needs to be attached to a church. Everybody needs to be committed to a, a local church that is preaching God's Word, whereby they can serve and, and grow. So the question is, isn't, should you? The question is, where is that going to be? And it might be here. Since you're here, you ought to give that a look. But if it's not here, that's okay. But it needs to be someplace else. And I'm very sincere when I say, if for whatever reason our church is not for you, then I know lots of people, I know lots of churches, and I can find a, a good church for you. And I would, I would actually be glad to do that because uh, we want everybody to be involved in the Lord's work and growing in it. So that's why we provide that class a couple times a, a year, four weeks, and then at the end of that four weeks, we don't hassle you, we don't pressure you, any of that. You then have the information upon which you can make a, a prayerful and informed decision. So that's uh, the schedule for that. And then after that's over in May, May the 21st, is when we will start a new series, and that will be in the, in the auditorium. All right, so today you see at the top of page 34, everybody have notes? I saw John giving them out, and I saw Bob giving them out pretty diligently, so I think everybody got a copy? Good. So you see at the top of page 34, the doctrine that we're going to consider today, and maybe, depending on how far we get, maybe as well in our last session in two weeks, but is justification. And I've titled it Justification, Grace, Then, and Now. And the idea there is, as we will be reminded, justification is something that took place for all of us who have come to Christ in the past. When we came to Christ, we were justified. We'll see that. So it's then, it is a past event, but it has very, very practical uh, present effects on us and on our mindset and on the way we see ourselves and the way we see others and our circumstances. And that'll be the latter portion of the notes that, that you have. And we may, we may get to some of that today. So that's what I mean by grace then and now. At the top of page 34, theology cries out for justification because without that, we're lost, we're hopeless. Now, that's actually fairly poor wording in the way that's said. Theology cries out for justification. Now, I can say it's poor wording because it's not mine. It's uh, Paul Tripp's, and I stole it from him, and so I can criticize him. But here we're talking, of course, about the doctrine of justification. And so what he is saying there is that theology requires that there be this thing called justification. Not, you could read that, theology needs to be justified. You need to justify 
spending time on theology. Well, you don't really need to justify that. Uh, but all of our theology, as you'll see, what he's, what he's gonna, the point he's going to make is that all of these things we believe, several of them that we've already seen in, in prior weeks, all point toward the need for this doctrine of justification. That's what he's saying. So all of our theology and the doctrines that fit under it really move us toward the need for this one, for justification. And so let's read that again then. Theology cries out for justification. All of these things we believe, several that we've seen in previous week, point us toward the need for the doctrine of justification because without justification, we're lost, we're helpless. <clears throat> Imagine for a moment if you believed in the existence of this all-powerful, holy creator God, and you believed that you were created for a relationship with him, but sin has broken that relationship. So that's one of the items of theology that we believe. God is the creator. We believe in creation. But imagine if you believed in that, and, and you also had seen what we have together, the doctrine of sin. I've got this broken relationship with God. It's left you, next paragraph, morally impure, and there's nothing you could do about it. What horrible hopelessness that would be. That's why he says, I believe that every doctrine pushes you toward Jesus, because if you believe these things, if you believe God is this God of awesome holiness and power and sovereignty, and I'm a sinner, and those are all doctrines we've looked at, how hopeless and fearful that existence would be apart from God having a solution to this problem that's created by his holiness and our sin. And so the doctrines of Scripture scream for a Savior. They scream for this horrible gap that now exists between me and God and this horrible condition that I'm left in a sin somehow that, can't be, that I'm left in, 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 in the condition of sin that can't be fixed. Paul says that we... We're without God and without hope in the world. Everything is vain. Everything is lost. So God gives hope because of that. God gives hope, and, and I just want to spend a, a few minutes talking about that fact, that God gives hope when needed, because what Paul Tripp has laid out here is accurate. It's true. That if you understand these things about God and God's absolute holiness and our sinfulness, and if you're, and if you're left there and if you're just left in the morass of your own struggle, and then the struggle of all the people who are struggling around you, if you're just left with all of that, well, then it is hopeless, and it is, it is depressing and fearful. And so, as you read through Scripture, you find God punctuating the story with hope regularly. Thanks be to God. So think about how, how it... It, how it starts. Um, we're going to go back to Eden here in, in a little bit in the, in the first couple of chapters of Scripture. But as you read through the Bible, I say in the How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible class that you'll notice this pattern of grace, sin, judgment, grace, <laughs> sin, <laughs> judgment. I mean, you, you just see this cycle over and over again. As you just read through the Bible, you see God's grace you see humanity's rebellion in sin, and then you see God's judgment in some fashion on that. But then God comes back in grace. And then the cycle goes over again. So Eden, you go back to the garden. You got, 
God's grace is evident from the very beginning. I mean, God makes this beautiful existence for humanity. And he, he descends, he deigns, he, he stoops down in his grace to speak to humanity. If you think, have you ever thought about you know, what kind of character God could have and based on that character, what kind of world this could have been? I mean, God's all-powerful. God has no one above him. He doesn't have to ask anyone's permission. So what if God was just sort of sadistic? You know, i got the power, I just make stuff, and then I just watch it flail. There you go, do your best. Makes Makes these creatures, but doesn't give those creatures any information. Leaves them groping around blindly in the darkness. I mean, theoretically, that seems so weird to us, but theoretically, well, here's the reason it seems so weird, because God's so good. Because God hasn't done that. But theoretically, he could. He could make humanity and say, fend for yourself. Figure it out. But at the very beginning, God talks. God talks to humanity. And we get an idea of who he is and who we are and what it is we're supposed to do. So God communicates, and God has communicates in revealing, making known himself in the creation itself, his power, his beauty, his, his orderliness, all of that you see just in the way he created things. But then he comes and communicates personally. And then communicates in a book and preserves that book for us to tell him about us about himself and ourselves and the world that he's placed us in and the purpose for it and all of that. So going back to minute one of our creation, God shows his grace. He doesn't have to do the stuff that he does. We read about it. We say, okay, that happened, that happened. But we don't sometimes step back and go, what does that say about God? That he does that. And what if he didn't? And who told him he had to? So in Eden, you see creation. Of course, then, unfortunately, you see sin. Then you see the judgment. You see the curses upon the man, the woman, and upon the, upon the serpent, and upon the environment, the creation itself. But then God gives grace again. And what if he hadn't? What if he had just made, created has fellowship with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebel as our representatives. He meets out this just judgment upon them, upon the serpent, upon the environment. And then he leaves it there. But, of course, there are more pages after that. And he doesn't leave it there. And in chapter 3, he gives a ray of hope. In that thing that we call the, the proto-evangelium. You know, Latin term for first evangel, first gospel. And it's in chapter 3, after he's given out the judgments. And the cycle has started. God's grace, and then sin, and then judgment in the curses, but then grace over again. Let's start over again. And God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, serpent, and the seed of the woman, and you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. 
So just this ray of hope that there's going to come a solution to this banishment from the presence of God and all of these, and these curses. And you see as you read through Scripture that happening over and over. So Adam and Eve you know, begin to populate the earth. Over time, the earth and sin being what it is, people being what the, who they are. You come to chapter 6, and in verse 5, God says that he determined to destroy the world because the thoughts and the intents of humanity were only evil continually. All right, we're back to ugly again. Okay. Right? We're back to sin. We're back to rebellion in a big way. And then there's going to be judgment. And we know how the judgment comes. I'm going to destroy the world. And God is just to do this. God is right. God, it, it, is, it is righteous for God to judge wrong, to judge sin. And so he does. Amen. And he, uh, he judges sin, but he saves. Here's his grace again. He spares eight people. And he gives them the ark. And you guys know the story, but after the story, I don't know if you, are, you notice this, but after the ark and after the, the saving of Noah and his wife and his sons and their, and their wives, he then gives Noah and, and them instructions. And they're very similar instructions to what he gave to Adam. So go be fruitful and multiply, he says. All right, let's start over. <laughs> let's see if, if you guys can do it right this time. But of course, you know, you're, so there's grace. And then sin. You know, you go a few more chapters and you're at the Tower of Babel. And humanity's rebelling against God and we don't need God and we can be independent of God. And so God judges by confounding their language. Separating, separating them now. But there is, in the midst of all of that, there's then grace again. And if you're, just, if you're thinking through the story, do you guys remember how, the, how grace shows up just after the tower and after the scattering and all of that? You get to the end of, of chapter 11, um, and you hear about a guy named Abram who lives in Ur. And his family are idol worshipers. They worship idols in Ur of what is now modern-day Iraq. They're idol worshipers, but God is going to call this man not because of anything good in that guy, but because of everything good in God. God is good, and he does this good thing. He shows his grace yet again. All right, you know, we tried it with Adam. We tried it with Noah. Let's give it a whirl with, <laughs> with this guy. And his dad, Terah, and all of his family line the Bible is careful to tell us, are idol worshipers. So sometimes we get this false idea, you know, that God spared Noah because there was something great about Noah. You guys remember Noah getting drunk and naked and all the sordid stuff in him? That's great Noah, right? Or there's something great about Abraham. Abraham's an, an idol worshiper. It's God's grace in Abraham. And, and apart from God's grace, guess what route Abraham goes? I mean, we see it later, don't we? When Abraham you know, decides he, he's going to come up with his own plan for the chosen son. But God, in his grace, calls 
Abraham. And you're going to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And he gives them the Abrahamic covenant. And through your seed, now all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so it's, it, God narrows it to a particular nation and a particular people for the purpose of expanding it. But the first part of your Bible is over and over this cycle of grace, sin, judgment, grace, sin, judgment. I've said that, you know, I think a good way to think about the way the Bible story goes is, uh, I think I said this several weeks ago in this class, is to think of it in terms of these three uh, phases, these, these three items, creation, fall, and redemption. And creation you can think of as an orientation. The fall introduces disorientation. And redemption is God's reorientation of his world. Creation, fall, redemption. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Cycles, okay? And you see it over and over again. So you can use different labels for it, but you see it at both the, both the macro level and the micro level. Macro, meaning the big picture of the Bible, you just, that you see creation, fall, redemption. Starts with creation, then the fall, and then ultimately there's going to be the ultimate redemption, reorientation, sometimes called the consummation at the end. God's going to bring it all back together. That's the big story. That's the, the meta-narrative, sometimes called. But then there, that's macro, you know, but, but then there's the micro, the particular stories, and even the, the particular stories of people in the Bible within that overall story have that same cycle going on. You see that in those people's lives. You see God's grace to them. You see their own sin. You see the consequences of that. And yet God continues to extend grace. And let me add, that's not just true of the characters particularized in the Bible, then that's true of you. That's true of me. That's the reason we got all these stories. For you to be able to see now the cycle in your life of God's grace, your sin, the consequences. And then God's continuing to extend, extend His grace. So, back to page 34. God looked at His broken world and He was unwilling to leave it at that, in that condition in his love. It would have been right for him to just judge. But he sends his son because what needs to be fixed, we can't. So Jesus lives an utterly righteous life, but he lives that on my behalf so that he can be a perfect, acceptable sacrifice for sin, pain, the penalty of my iniquity, and satisfying God's anger. So God is unwilling to leave it in that condition, that fourth paragraph says, in his love. It would have been right for him to just judge. So those are the two words that I want to emphasize in that paragraph. God's love, but also his justice. He could have injustice judged and left it at that. And that would have been just. Because I want us to think for a minute about why it is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in the counsels of the Holy Triune God 
determined that God the Son would come to earth, pay the penalty for our sin, live the life that we were supposed to live. Why did, why did, that, why did they decide to do that? Well, here Paul Tripp says it's in his love because, because of love. And he's right about that. It is love. But, it, but there's also, he could, it would have been right, Paul Tripp correctly says, for him to just carry out his justice. So if you've ever had the idea, then we should lose it. That God had to do this. God didn't have to do this. In love, he did it. And he would have, he would have been right and just to simply leave us where we were. So that is called, theologians call that, the consequent necessity view of the atonement. The consequent necessity view. And here's what is being said there. That payment for sin in God's justice is necessary. So that's the necessity piece. God, because of his character, not, it's not that God simply does judge sin. God has to judge sin. So sometimes when we think about the character of God, we think, you know, there's nothing that God has to do. But in fact, there are some things that he cannot do, and some things actually he has to do. There's nothing that God cannot do because it's imposed, there's some limitation imposed on him. So there's nothing like that. He has all power. But because there's, so there's nothing outside of God, external to him, that keeps him from doing whatever he determines to do. Nothing. External to God. But internal to God, his character, governs the things that he can and cannot do. And this is a good thing for us. Because it means God cannot lie. It's not that God just doesn't lie. God is constitutionally, by his nature, incapable of lying. But that's an internal character imposition. That's who he is. And so he acts in accordance with, with who he is. Likewise with his justice. His justice is a demonstration of his holy character. He is holy. And therefore, he must execute justice. Not just he does, he must. So when, when violations of his character are committed, there is going to be judgment. So he's, he's going to be just. He has to be. Now the question is, how's that payment going to go? Because who assigns the payment? You know, the wages of sin ultimately is death. We know that. Who assigns that? God does. When God saw that the thoughts and the intents of the heart of humanity were only evil continually, he said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. Who came up with that? That would be God, right? So he's going to judge. The question is, how is that going to happen? In what form is that judgment going to come? And that's where the consequent 
peace, consequent necessity. The necessity is because of his justice. But as a consequence of his love, he did it. As a result of his love for humanity, he chose to take the punishment that belonged to us. And that's the consequence, as a consequence of his love, which he's not obligated to show in a particular way, but because he is love, he chose to do this. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit determine that the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation is going to happen. And it's going to happen the way that we've experienced and benefited from it. Through God the Son coming, living the life that we were supposed to live, dying the death that we deserved. So it's his love, and as a consequence of his love, he determines that I'm not going to meet that judgment out forever on these creatures that I've made. But rather, I myself am going to pay the, the penalty. So when you look at the cross, you see God's love and God's justice come together perfectly. His justice is there because it's a payment for sin in full. His love is there because he's the one making the payment for you and for me. Fifth paragraph. And then he rises again, conquering sin and death, so that all of that then is applied to me as I place my faith in Jesus. So I stand before God now covered in the righteousness of Jesus. I stand forgiven past, present, and future. I stand before God utterly accepted. You ought to just take those couple sentences, cross-stitch them, <laughs> something. Have them go to bed, read those, go to bed, get up in the morning, have that with you, you know, when you, when you go to lunch throughout your day and it's going however it's going in a fallen world. And if you can just keep that in front of you all the time, then I'm covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Crumb that I am. Big fat sack of sin that I am. I'm still covered in the righteousness of Jesus, forgiven past, present, future, utterly accepted by God. I then can run into the throne room of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and be accepted. Named as his child, he named himself as my father. And I understand that this work doesn't just stop with me, but the Bible says he's come to make all things new, that everything that's broken will ultimately be fixed. So, you know, one of our Christmas hymns is at Hark the Herald, I don't know which one it is, that, that says, far as the curse is found. That's one of the great lines. As far as the curse is found, wherever the curse is, and there's a curse on humanity, and there's a curse on the environment, on the creation itself, so there's sickness and disease and death and all of that, but far as the curse is found, it is going to be restored completely, all things new. So, every doctrine screams out for the justifying grace of Christ because if I'm ever going to stand before God acceptable, if I'm ever going to be forgiven, if there's ever going to be such a thing as righteousness put next to my name, 
Someone's got to do it for me. I cannot do that for myself. Jesus came to do that. He stands in that gap. And so the anger of God and the grace of God drives Jesus to the cross, the justice and the love, to pay the penalty and to offer to me what I could never achieve myself. What a beautiful thing to consider. And so here's one of Paul Tripp's all-time great couple of words. We are sad celebrants. And mature Christian people learn that. That we are celebrants on the one hand. We celebrate all of this beautiful, unbelievably beautiful stuff. At the same time, he went to the cross because of my sin. I still live in a fallen world and I contribute still to its fallenness. So there's yes, a sadness until we are removed completely from the presence of all the vestiges of fallenness. There is a measure of sadness, but we are sad celebrants. And people who only get one piece of that don't understand either our fallenness or they don't understand the extent of the gospel. We still mourn the existence of sin, but we celebrate the existence of justifying grace. So, let's define what this is, this justification about which we're talking. It is this, top of page 35. The act of God, whereby he declares a sinner to be legally righteous and treats him that way. So, notice it's in bold that it's a declaration. And you've got the word legally righteous there. And here's why. Because as the New Testament uses this word that's translated justify or justification, it's a courtroom term. It's a legal term. And the picture is of God, the holy judge. And we, hopeless sinners, standing before the bar of his justice. And instead of meeting out the justice that we deserve, he instead declares us to be righteous, even though we're not. I hereby, as the God of the universe, declare Ken Brown to be righteous, even though he ain't. And on what basis can God do that? God does that on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. So there's real righteousness, it's just not mine. It's Jesus' righteousness that he applies to me. So he declares me to be righteous, even though I'm still not this side of heaven. Justification does not mean then, next line there, to be made righteous, but to be declared legally righteous. Now, the, the reason for that, the reason that's important, is because... Our righteous standing before God, then, depends on God's declaration, not upon our performance. If you believe justification means he's made you righteous, now you got to, you got to perform. You've got to live up to the, the standard of God's holy character, which none of us can do. So when you are saved, you do not become righteous, you're still a sinner. 
Rather, God declares you legally righteous because of your union with Christ. So Paul says what I was just saying in um, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And, you know, the book of Romans is, it's an, it's an argument, really is what it is. Paul's laying out an argument. And he's laying it out in a very logical fashion. It's got 16 chapters worth. And as you follow those 16 chapters, it starts at the beginning and it gets all the way to the end with regard to God's plan for bringing people back to himself. So you guys remember how it starts. It starts in chapter 1, that the wrath of God abides upon all humanity. Chapter 1, verse 18. So up to verse 17, you've got an introduction. And in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are the theme verses of the entire book. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to everyone who believes. And he says to the Jew first and then to the, to the Gentile. That's all that thing I've been talking about in the book of Acts the last few weeks, right? And, and uh, then he says that, uh, this, that this gospel is by faith, verse 17, from first to last, from beginning to end, it's by faith. So I, Paul, am going to make the case that the good news, the gospel, is not based upon your works. Because if it's based upon your works, it's actually bad news. <laughs> and so he sets forth the theme right there. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not works, everyone who believes. And it's that way from beginning to end. Now let me prove it. The wrath of God abides upon all humanity. In fact, verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 starts with the word for or because. So that's him now tying, here's my theme. Now I'm starting to prove it. Because, here we go. And then he goes all the way to verse 32 in Romans chapter 1, talking about the descent of all humanity into sin and into deeper and deeper levels of sin. You guys remember reading that and it's very depressing? So that God, inasmuch as they did not want to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. That is, humanity decided we don't want to think about God. So that's why when you go to work and you, you know, bring up something churchy or spiritual, they go, oh, I don't talk about religion. Now, they just talk to you for an hour about how sloshed they got over the weekend, about who they slept with. About, I mean, they talked about all kinds of intimate, personal details. But when you bring up something spiritual, hey, that's off limits. <laughs> you know, that's why I get per let's not get personal here, okay? And, and, here, and here's the Romans' one reason for that. People don't like to think about God. That's too uncomfortable, man. So, and so if you're a curve breaker, don't, you know, the last thing in the world the world wants is a curve breaker. Let's all do the same thing. 
Let's all talk the same way about the same stuff. And as long as we do that, nobody gets uncomfortable. But when there's a curve breaker in the midst, somebody goes, hey, how do you think the world got here? Do you think it just showed up? Or do you think somebody created it? What, what are you talking about, man? So have another beer, okay? <laughs> and then sleep that off, okay? So it goes all the way through chapter 1. Then Paul starts to talk about not just humanity in general, but he starts to focus on God's chosen people, his chosen nation, the Jews. So you go for chapter and a half, chapter 2, into chapter 3, and he says nobody's kept the law. God's chosen people were given his standard and nobody met it. So everybody's sinful. Humanity in general, the Gentiles, including God's chosen people, the Jews who were given the law and nobody kept it. And then you come to chapter 3. In chapter 3 and verse 9, chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, what shall we say then in response to this? In response to everything he said about the plight of humanity, what do we say? And then that's where he goes with that litany from verses 10 through 18. And he's quoting the Old Testament over and over again and what it says about how bad we are. So he just summarizes, if I haven't convinced you already, then in these now nine verses, I'm going to quote all of these places from the first part of the Bible to show that not only is all humanity hopeless in our sin now, it's always been that way. These are quotes from the Old Testament. You guys remember these quotes? Their throats are open graves. Wow. Put that on a Christmas card or something. You know, just, I mean, <laughs> you just go. <laughs> I mean, Paul just missed how to win friends and influence people, you know? He just tells you. And it's <laughs> I mean, it's just really ugly, man, and it deals with every part of your anatomy, your feet. Your mouths, our tongues, I mean, it goes through everything. So once you get done with that, then he has this, this conclusion in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that famous verse that many of us memorized when we were kids in Sunday school, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's the tail end of all that. So, and at this point, he hasn't gotten to the solution yet. So he goes through chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, these nine verses. It's just horrible. And he says, therefore, as a result of that, verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3, no one will be justified before God on the basis of the law. No one. And in fact, he says, the law causes every mouth to be stopped. Because none of us could keep it. Every mouth. In other words, you're going, to stand, you're going to stand before God someday, and you're going to have no excuse. And you're not going to say, hey, you don't understand. You're not going to be able to invoke the Allman brothers, those great theologians. <laughs> Lord, I was born a rambling man. 
<laughs> I'm trying to make a living and doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. I mean, somebody actually recorded a song <laughs> about in the future talking to God with what excuse they're going to have. I was born a rambling man. I was born in the back. The lyrics do. I can. In fact, let me just go through the whole thing for you. I was born in the back of a Greyhound bus. Because some of you are old enough to remember this. Going down Highway 41. Lord, I was born a rambling man. And there goes the refrain. But guess what? Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, the Almond Brothers ain't getting by. The Greyhound bus isn't an excuse. Highway 41 won't do it. As a matter of fact, you know what? I knew where you were going to be born. I knew what highways would be next to your house. I already knew that Highway 41 would be part of your life. I already knew all of this. I put, I, a sovereign God, put you in the circumstances that you are to obey me in. And you failed to do that, every last one of you. And so every mouth will be stopped. That is the argument of the book of Romans through chapter 3 and verse 20. But here's, here's the beautiful thing. And I'll quit in a couple minutes. When you get to chapter 3 and verse 21, there are two passages in the New Testament where the verse begins with the English word but, a contrast. Two that stand out for me as two of the greatest contrasts in all the Word of God. So this thing has gone from chapter 1 all the way now toward the end of chapter 3 and how bad it is. But in verse 21, Romans 3.21, But now, a righteousness from God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, and then it goes on now to talk about where this righteousness comes from. But now, see, you ain't got no righteousness. I've proven that, but here's the contrast. But now, a righteousness not from you, but from God, has come. This righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain. And you get it by faith in Jesus Christ. So Romans is this argument. And that's the argument that he's, that he's making. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says, so as a result of that, no one can boast before God. How could anyone boast? How can anyone ever stand before God and say, look, I did the best I could with what you gave me? I mean, given the circumstances, Lord, I think you'd have to agree I did pretty well. Where is boasting? It's excluded. Nobody can boast. And then chapter 4. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Now, the reason Abraham's important is because Abraham's the father of the faithful, and he was given the Abrahamic covenant, and he's the guy that was called out of Ur, the Chaldees that I talked about earlier. And God said, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and it's through his seed that the Messiah 
has come, so he's important for obvious reasons. But here's another reason he's important. Because Paul has been trying to make the case to Jews that your law didn't get it done. Your law didn't get it done. And the law came through Moses. But see, Abraham came before Moses. So the chronology is important here. Paul's trying to show that God's salvation and a relationship with him has never been by works. Before the law, during the law, or after the law. And so he says, what about Abraham? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Quoting now Genesis 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness that he doesn't have is credited to him because he believed, not because he worked. Next verse. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. But to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who, get this phrase, justifies the wicked. God declares righteous the wicked. Us. Sinful people. But he declares us to be righteous, even though we're not. And that's what he did with Abraham. His faith is credited as righteousness. All right. One minute over. I told you there were two great contrasts in the Bible. Did anybody hear me say that? Were any of you going, hey, what happened to that second one? Okay. The second one is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, say, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were like the rest, like all the rest, Paul says, we were by nature objects of wrath. We came into the world by nature under the anger of God at our sin. And so we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead, so he's again giving you the hopeless thing like he did, but he's just doing it in three verses instead of three chapters. It's hopeless, but then here's the contrast. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then in parentheses, Paul says, he's actually got the parentheses there. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. And then it's just after that that there's these famous verses. You guys, many of you know, verse, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All right, that's why we need justification to be declared righteous on the basis of somebody else's righteousness. Because you don't have it, I don't have it. We'll finish this two weeks from today in our last lesson. Thanks.